Tonight's reading is taken from the book of Acts, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Katie. Good evening, everyone. Let's um, pray as we begin, shall we? Risen and ascended Lord, we praise you for your resurrection and ascension. And we ask that you would open our eyes tonight to see in your word more of how good and how strong you are. We ask that you would send your spirit to set our hearts on fire with love for you and that we would leave changed. Amen. Well, it's great to be back at St. Paul's, always um, great to come back and see so many familiar faces and every time new faces too. If I haven't met you before, my name is Tom. I grew up here, escaped to go to university for a few years and then got dragged back uh, to lead the student ministry and to teach at a local school. I've just come out of, or just coming out of three years at a vicar factory in Cambridge, and I am boxed and ready to be delivered to a church in northeast London in five or six weeks, where I'll be working as a curate there, which is the same thing that Adam is at, at this church. Uh, and as Sarah and I have been looking at churches around the country over the last year, trying to find the right place to go for curacy, the right place to go and work and train for the next few years, the biggest question that we've been asking is, what's the vicar like? Because in, in any job, then the boss is going to completely determine what the job is like, especially so in a training post. It's why Adam is such a hero here at St. Paul's. And <laughs> What's the vicar like? We all don't, I'm sure, and I hope we've all had experience of good bosses. Uh, someone who, who encourages us, who empowers us, who champions us. Someone who believes in us, who pushes us out of our comfort zone. Someone who makes our job easier, not harder. Someone who gives us enough space but doesn't micromanage. It's, it's great to have a good boss. 
And on the other hand, I'm sure that lots of us will have had experience of less good bosses. I had one friend when we were undergraduates who got a job washing pots in a restaurant. And the, the manager was awful. He just spent the whole day shouting at the staff. Everything was wrong. Everything was their fault. Everything was personal. Everything was negative. And as you can imagine, it destroyed the people who were working there. They got out of that job as quickly as they could because the manager was abusing the authority that he had over his staff, not using it to help them or serve them, using it against them. It would be great, wouldn't it, if in work we could all have a good boss. Now, just hold that thought. The other thing going on, as Adam said, is that it's Thy Kingdom Come Week. We're spending a week praying individually, together here at church. We're asking God to make this earth more like his kingdom in heaven. And two things on prayer. We all pray. I'm sure that all of us in this room pray. But even the most hardened atheist has been known to to admit that at the darkest or most desperate times, at the point where it all comes crashing down, you're at your lowest ebb. It's only human. Every person cries out, God, if you are there, help. We all have a reflex to pray when stuff gets truly desperate. We all pray, but we all, also we all find prayer hard. You'll never meet anybody who's completely sorted prayer, who has no issues in their prayer life. If someone says that they do, then don't believe them. We try, don't we? We try and carve out time, but the to-do list beckons, the phone notification goes, the person emails... The worries come, the distractions flood in. It's so hard to set aside time to pray. And even when we do, you can pray faithfully for days or weeks, setting aside time, reading your Bible, speaking to God. And it just feels like the words come bouncing down from the ceiling. No emotion, no experience. It's as if nothing's happening. I'm sure we've all felt from time to time questions like, does God care? Is he listening? Does prayer do anything? Is there any point? Why doesn't he listen to me? Why have I been praying for the same thing for years and years and nothing's happened? Prayer can be really hard sometimes. And what's great for us tonight as we come to dig into this doctrine of the ascension is that the ascension, for me more than any other doctrine, is the biggest encouragement as I come to pray. And I think helps with all of those questions and struggles that we all have. So tonight this is less of an expositional sermon where we go through one passage. This is about the doctrine of the ascension. We'll be going all around the New Testament. What is the ascension? What's the point? What difference does it make to me or you tomorrow morning when we're at work or if you're a history student when you're in bed? What difference does the ascension make? Two things I want us to see. Jesus is above us, all-powerful, reigning over the universe from the throne of heaven. And Jesus is ahead of us, always praying for you and for me from the Father's right hand. And we'll see how those really change the way that we can come to him. What is the Ascension anyway, though? Because I, I think we probably all missed it. Ascension Day was Thursday. Did anybody know that Ascension Day was Thursday? We don't, we don't tend to talk about it, do we? A couple of nods. I'm very impressed. You can walk into any gift shop and you can buy a card for Jesus' birthday at Christmas. Resurrection, Easter, you can buy cards for that. Ascension Day, never seen a gift card for Ascension Day. We don't talk about it very much, do we? And if you think about it, it's a little bit weird. Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. He spent 40 days with the disciples, teaching them and proving that he'd risen from the dead, talking to them about what they were to do next, promising that he'd send the Holy Spirit. 40 days after Easter, he kind of levitated and disappeared into a cloud and presumably is orbiting somewhere behind the moon at the moment. And then 10 days later, Pentecost. What's with the ascension? And of course, it's not about the physical 
lifting up. The point isn't that Jesus is orbiting the earth around the moon somewhere, something like Superman. It's not a physical displacement at all. That's not the point. I don't know if you've ever been to Buckingham Palace or if you've ever been to a throne room, but what all throne rooms anywhere around the world, or even in any art depiction, what they all have in common, a throne, obviously, but also steps leading up to the throne. You'll never find a throne room without steps leading up to it. And I don't know if you've ever seen a coronation, maybe Queen Elizabeth's, maybe if you've watched The Crown, you've seen the depiction of that, as she kind of walks into Westminster Abbey. And then you climb the steps to the dais, like this one here, and then more steps up to the throne. Because the image is that you are ascending, you're being exalted to sit on this throne, this place of power, and then you're crowned to rule. Why doesn't Jesus just vanish at the end of the 40 days? Why does he need to levitate? Well, as we'll see in just a second, throughout the New Testament, the disciples are keen to explain that the ascension is Jesus' coronation. It's not a physical change, it's a change in relationship. Uh, just turn over to the next page, to Acts chapter 2, which will come up on the screens. And Peter at Pentecost is trying to explain this to the crowds. What's going on with the ascension? Peter explains, for David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Did you see it? God has made Jesus Lord. Jesus wasn't Lord before. Jesus has always been God. And when he came down to earth and took on flesh, he became fully God, fully human. But he wasn't Lord. Because what God did at the ascension is he raised Jesus up, exalted him high and lifted up, and he sat him on the throne of heaven, appointed him as Lord to rule the universe. In the, if we go back one slide, then Peter started off the quotation, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We kind of get this image when we say someone's my right hand man. It, it conveys trust, it says respect, it says I've given this person my authority to speak for me, I trust them. A king, for a king or a queen, their right-hand man, the person who sits at their right hand, is their prime minister or their chancellor or their grand vizier or their governor. It's the person that the king has trusted to rule for them. So what happens at the ascension is that God exalts Jesus and he sits him at the right hand of the throne of heaven and he makes him Lord. He appoints Jesus, his son and heir, as the king to govern the whole cosmos. It's explained even more in the next verse that we'll look at in Ephesians chapter 1, picking up from verse 20. Paul explains, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Did you see? At the ascension, God crowns Jesus. It's his coronation, it's his exaltation to rule over the universe as its governor. And why, in Ephesians 1? For you and for me, for the sake of the, ch of the church. There is a human being who knows what it is like to be lonely and tired and hungry and rejected, sitting on the throne of heaven with all power under his feet for you and for me. What difference does that make? Well, isn't it great that we can all have the best imaginable boss? 
Imagine that you had a new boss at work. Imagine that you had to go to them with a request. Maybe you needed, uh, maybe you have a problem with your team, maybe you need some more resources, maybe there's a situation you need to talk through, maybe you need compassionate leave, whatever it is. You're going to your boss for a request. It's a new boss, you haven't met them yet. You've got to make a request straight away. You knock on the door, you walk in, and they're sitting on your boss's chair. The new boss is Jesus. And it's a ridiculous picture on one level, but do you feel the relief? That sense, that, that bit in your gut that goes, oh, my boss gets me. He's on my side. He's not going to have a problem with it. He understands what it's like to be, to be me. He's got all power, and he's going to use it for my benefit. And if we really grasp this, I think it would transform our approach to the whole of life. There is a human being sitting in heaven, ruling the universe for our good, sovereign over all, all power and all authority, over death and debt and disaster and disease, using his power for our benefit. He's the longest reigning monarch in human history. Jesus on the throne of heaven. Now, it's great news, but if you're anything like me, it'll provoke a couple of questions or problems in your head. For one thing, if God is so good, and if Jesus loves me, and if he knows what it's like to be me, and if he's got all power, then why doesn't he answer my prayer? Why did that happen? Why do I keep feeling like my prayers are coming down from the ceiling? Why doesn't it seem to work for me if Jesus is so good and so powerful? And it's a really important question. I'm not going to be able to, and it's different in each of our situations, and a two-minute thought from me isn't going to solve every intellectual problem you've ever had, but a couple of thoughts. First is, almost every bit, the vast majority of human suffering and unanswered prayer comes down at the end of the day to free will. Not necessarily mine, Sometimes it's me, I have sinned and I'm rebelling against God and that is the reason that my prayer's not answered or I'm suffering sometimes. But often not the case. If your prayer's not answered, it doesn't mean it's your fault. Often it's someone else's free will. Maybe another individual human being alive now. It might be their free will, their choice to sin that's causing the problem. Sometimes it's humanity collectively. We as the human race have chosen, all of us together, to rebel against God and it's broken the fabric of the world. Lots of suffering and unanswered prayers due to the collective free will of the human race. And sometimes it's the enemy. Just as there is a good God who rules the universe, there is a devil who longs to twist and warp and destroy life and who, who is against us and against Jesus. Lots of suffering comes down to his choice to defy God. God is the king, but the kingdom is often in rebellion against him. And the vast majority of suffering and unanswered prayer is due to that. Another thought also is God's wisdom, that often God says yes to prayer, and that's wonderful. We love it when that happens. Sometimes he says no, and that's really hard. When we think that it's the right thing, when we desperately want something, and God in his wisdom sees the bigger picture and decides that we can't have it, that's hard. But it may be if we were to see it from God's eyes, we'd know it was the right decision. And sometimes God doesn't say yes or no, he says later. Take a trivial example. When I was a teenager, I desperately wanted to pray in tongues. I thought it was really cool. I thought it looked like magic. I thought it looked really holy. I thought it was a great thing. So I said, God, please can I speak in tongues? And I prayed for it for a few years, and nothing, ever. All of my friends were speaking in tongues, and I wasn't, and I felt left out, and I wanted to. No, nothing. And then a few years later, after I'd given up asking, God, while we were worshipping one night, just whispered in my ear, Tom, I want you to praise me in tongues. And I started to praise him in tongues, and since then it's been a huge gift to me in my spiritual life and my prayer life, and I'm very grateful for it. God said no to me for years, and, but what he actually meant was later. I think what he actually meant was, you're far too immature, Tom. 
I'm not going to give you this gift yet. Now, I'm very glad for that. It felt like a no, it was actually a later. Um, there's obviously far more to the pain that we feel in suffering and unanswered prayer than that, but free will and God's wisdom goes a long way to helping us understand why it is that often it feels so hard. The final thing to remember is to ask ourselves, where is Jesus in this unanswered prayer or in this suffering? Because often we picture God when our prayers aren't being answered. We picture God as kind of far off, absent, distant, like a, an elderly tyrant on a golden throne who doesn't care at all about us. And it's the ascension that shows us that we couldn't be more wrong. Who do we pray to when we pray? We pray to the Father. And at the right hand of the Father is Jesus, a human being who loved us so much that he came and lived our life as a human, that he died for us on the cross, who knows what it's like and sacrificed everything for us, and he is at the right hand of the Father. So we know that it is not that God is uncaring, because when we look up, we see Jesus. One other problem, though, that Jesus' power as the ruler of everything leads us to is that power demands a response. Authority demands a response. I can still remember when I was 11 years old, in year seven, going up to big school for the first time, terrified. And the, the first week, the teachers put the fear of God into us. And they said, when the headmaster walks into the room, you are all to jump to attention and stand up, whatever you're doing, whatever's going on in the classroom, as a mark of respect for the authority of the head teacher. And we were terrified of the headmaster for our whole, the whole of year seven. Whenever he walked into the door, even looked, he might just open the door a crack and we'd think he was about to open the door. We'd jump to attention, stand up at our chairs. Because it was about showing respect for authority. That's why schools do that. Same thing if you're in the army. If um, your commanding officer walks past, you jump to attention and salute, don't you, as soon as he walks past. Authority demands a response. Jesus is the king of the universe. And there'll be one or two, probably not many of us tonight, but one or two who know that this week, maybe the last few months, we've been deliberately choosing consistently to walk against God's way, to put our own desires, our own pleasures, our own pride, whatever it is, ahead of God's will in our lives, and that we're walking in a consistent pattern of sin. It might not, shouldn't be many of us, but there'll be a couple here tonight who that's the case for. And it's very easy in that, in that case, if that is you, it's very easy to say it doesn't hurt anybody else. Nobody will find out. There won't be any consequences. It's just for me. But this passage makes really clear in Acts 1.11 that Jesus will return the same way that he went, come back to judge the living and the dead. He is a good boss and he is a good king. He is the boss and the king. And can I just encourage you, if you are in that position tonight, don't leave the building without falling on your knees, repenting, receiving the forgiveness and the love of a father who loves you, but bowing before the king of the universe and giving him the respect and the obedience that he deserves twice over because he made us and he bought us by his blood. Jesus is above us. He is all-powerful, and that is great news. He is the best boss you could ever ask for. We can approach him with confidence. And the second thing, more briefly, is that Jesus is ahead of us, and he is always praying for us. Imagine if you were on a hike and you were kind of climbing up a mountain. It's really helpful, isn't it, when someone who's further up the path than you leans down a hand to kind of give you a hand up, provide you a place to rest yourself or to support yourself as you climb up. Or somebody climbs up first and attaches a rope if you're climbing a really steep rock face so that they can help you to come up. It's great to have someone who's further ahead to bring us along. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's ruling the universe, but also he's praying 
for you and for me. He's offering a hand down to us. Because one day where he is, we will also be. That it is amazing when we realize that we are accepted by God based on nothing more and nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, once and for all. And that right now, on the basis of his death, he is standing at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. If you turn over a couple more pages to Acts chapter 7, we see this in practice in the death of Stephen. Stephen was one of the first Christians, one of the first Christians in the Bible to be killed for his faith. And just before he dies, this is the account. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. What gives Stephen such peace? As he's about to face his death, he knows he's about to die. What gives him that hope, that confidence, that assurance, that deep peace? He looks up and at the right hand of God the Father on the throne of heaven, the judgment seat, he sees Jesus. The risen Savior who had died for him and is interceding for God the Father, the basis of our acceptance before God's throne. Hebrews chapter 10 explains it even better in the next verse. This is comparing Jesus to the Old Testament priesthood. It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, his death on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you hear that? By one sacrifice, he has made us perfect forever. We, we desperately long for acceptance. It's true in the school playground. It's true with friends in your halls. It's true at work. It's true at church. We long for that group of friends who will accept us. I, I was struck by just thinking of all the Disney movies I grew up watching as a kid. I, I don't think I can think of a single Disney movie that doesn't have the desire to be accepted somewhere at the heart of it. Nemo wants his dad to accept him. Simba wants to be able to belong back at Pride Rock. Aladdin wants to belong in the palace. Uh, Mowgli wants to know if he belongs in the jungle with the animals or in the man village. Hercules wants to know where he belongs. He doesn't fit in in this world of humans. We're all driven by need to be accepted. And the problem is, in every situation in the world, in each of those Disney movies, to be accepted, you've got to do something. You've got to earn it. It's ingrained in us. To be accepted, I've got to be good enough, be nice enough, be polite enough, be clever enough, be attracted enough, be whatever. For Hercules, he's got to go and do all these tasks to get accepted back on Mount Olympus. And it's not like that with Jesus. Everything's upside down. You and I are accepted before the throne room of God the Father on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice once for all on the cross. It is done. It is done. It is done. And when I come to pray, how nice I've been to my wife, how much time I've spent reading the Bible that week, how holy I feel, how happy with myself I feel, how much I screwed up the day before, is irrelevant to my acceptance by God the Father. Because I come to him in Jesus, who is standing by the right hand of the Father, praying for me. It changes everything. Jesus is ahead of us. He's always praying for us. And where he is, we will one day be. 
In John 14, Jesus explains this to the disciples. He says to them, My father's house has many rooms. If this this were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because he is standing in the throne room of heaven right now for us, we have a sure and certain hope that we will one day be where he is. He's reached down the hand to pick us up and lift us up to him. It's a hope that nothing can shake. It's the sure and certain knowledge that we will one day be home with him. Just before he ascends, Jesus says this to his disciples in Acts 1 verse 4. He says to them, wait for the gift my father promised. For in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he goes up to heaven. Wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to celebrate next week at Pentecost. And the disciples spent 10 days in Jerusalem, in that upper room, waiting on God in prayer for the Spirit to fall and so that they could be filled with power from on high to go and tell the world about Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to do now. In just a moment, we're going to spend a chunk of time, three or four or five minutes, just waiting on God. Because Jesus has ascended to the throne room of heaven. And we can approach him with confidence. It dawned on me uh, afresh just on Wednesday night. I hadn't realized how dry I'd been feeling in my prayer life. And I'd been praying in the mornings, pretty much every morning, not for very long, not feeling very much. It had felt more of a duty than a joy the last couple of weeks. And then on Wednesday night, uh, we were having a praise and worship evening, quite like the one tomorrow night for thy kingdom come. And uh, Paul gave a talk, and God just grabbed my heart in in a fresh way. And I suddenly felt so convicted of the way I'd kind of just been sleepwalking through the last few weeks, doing my work and spending time with people, but not really pursuing God, not hungering after him, not, not remembering how good the gift of his death for us is. And I just fell to my knees as we were worshipping, and the Holy Spirit filled me in a way that he hasn't done many... It happens a few times, every few months, every few years. We go through dry patches, which can last for ages, and then suddenly, like an electric shock, God can be back there, right at the core of our being. And it was just a reminder for me on Wednesday how good it is when we wait on God, and we wait for him to fill us, because he's bought, at the cost of his blood, the ability for us to be filled with his presence and to know him more close than any other person. Even when we go through dry patches, he is constant. We go up and down and up and down and up and down. But he is above us and ahead of us, all powerful and always praying. He's powerful and he's praying, he's present. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's worthy of all our praise. And so would you stand? And we're just gonna wait on him for a few minutes. If you haven't done this before, we're just going to be quiet for a few minutes. And in the, in the quietness, just invite God by his Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants to inside you. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Open our eyes to see Jesus and fill our hearts afresh with your love. Come Holy Spirit.